coming on the Agony Column podcast. When Jeff Pruker edited the Oxford English Dictionary's Brave New Words, he followed words and phrases from science fiction. The phrase, beam me up, Scotty, was never uttered by Captain Kirk on the original series. Into realms where no science fiction writer had gone before. It's used simply as an expression of disgust or of despair or of, oh my God, get me out of here. Perhaps most famously by former representative Traficant, who would often shout, beam me up, Mr. Speaker, from the floor of the House of Representatives. Find your future in words. Coming on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The television show Star Trek, which first aired in 1966, has probably had a greater effect on the English language than any other single science fiction creation, with the possible exception of George Orwell's 1984. Words coined for the series and its spin-offs have stuck in the popular imagination and are used by people in all walks of life. Some, like Mind Meld and Warp Speed, are mainly used figuratively outside of science fiction. Starfleet has found a foothold in science fiction itself, while Cloaking Device and Nanite straddle both worlds. Star Trek also introduced the world to Klingon, the language created by linguist Mark Okrand for the movie Star Trek III The Search for Spock, and which has since taken on quite a life of its own. Star Trek also helped popularize some terms that had been around, but for the most part unrecognized for years. For example, the verb to beam, as by a matter transmitter, had appeared occasionally in science fiction since at least the 1950s, but its use on the show popularized it, and beam me up, or beam me up Scotty, a formulation that was never uttered in the original series, became a catchphrase. The phrase prime directive had also appeared previously in science fiction, but was given a boost when Star Trek writers made it the law of the United Federation of Planets. Now the term is used widely in the world at large, but within science fiction it is almost exclusively associated with Star Trek. The fans of Star Trek have also added a number of terms to the language, especially in the realm of fan fiction. Mary Sue was originally a character in a Star Trek fan fiction parody and gave her name to any story featuring a transparently idealized version of the author. Star Trek fans also named Slash Fiction, fan fiction featuring an erotic relationship between two characters. Early Slash Fiction often portrayed a relationship between Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, which became known as K-slash-S for Kirk-slash-Spock fiction. The slash between the K and the S gave Slash Fiction its name. It also became the standard nomenclature for fan fiction that focuses on relationships, separating the names or initials of the characters involved. The most familiar fan words, however, are Trekkie and Trekker. Names for the fans themselves. Most fans, it should be noted, much prefer the latter term. That these words are so recognizable, even to non-fans, may demonstrate better than anything just how influential the show has been in our popular culture. Jeff Pruker is a lexicographer and an editor for the Oxford English Dictionary's science fiction project, Brave New Words. It's a dictionary collecting the words created by the science fiction genre. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Thank you. Jeff, this is a fascinating project, but it didn't start off as just a dictionary. Could you talk about the OED Science Fiction Citation Project? Yes, the uh, Science Fiction Citation Project is something that's been going on for several years now. Basically, it's a website monitored by myself and a couple other volunteers, and it basically is a list of a whole list of words that the OED is interested in uh, pertaining to originating in science fiction. And the idea is that anybody who is interested, who has access to uh, old books, fanzines, magazines, whatever, can submit citations to give us supporting evidence that these words, are first off, uh, are used, uh, that they're common, and, uh, of course, most, most importantly, to help identify the, uh, the first use or maybe to identify new, uh, new meanings of these words. This project is actually it's very interesting. This, this came about because apparently the OED was working on a definition for the word mutie, which is a shortened form of mutant, and they had a very late citation, first citation for it, and they posted a request on a uh, Usenet news group for uh, earlier citations, and the response was so large that they decided that they should harness this online fan interest, and they created this whole project out of it. Wow, so well, they posted it to rec.arts.sf.written? I believe that was the news group. This was before my involvement with the, uh, with the project. So, so they posted this on a, on a news group, and they got such a huge response that they decided to base a dictionary around it? Well, the dictionary itself, the physical dictionary, was a much later project. The main citations project was really just part of a broader research project to identify new words, earlier citations, new meanings of words for the 
Oxford English Dictionary's revision for its third edition. Has, it, has that third edition come out? It is being updated continually online. So they started at the letter M, and they post uh, new updates every quarter or so. And I believe somewhere they're in the middle of P right now. Tell us how Brave New Words came out of this science fiction citations project. Did you pitch them this idea? or No, this was sort of an accident. This was a, this was a surprise to me. I was sort of in the process of trying to find out information about lexicography. My background actually was not... As a dictionary editor, I, was, I became involved in the, in the monitoring of the website and maintaining of the website simply because I had been active in it for so long and great frequency. And through that, I became interested in lexicography. So I did what all the career counselors tell you to do, which is to call up people for informational interviews. And uh, one of the editors I was talking to actually suggested that this would make a great book. And so she pitched, she, she pitched me the idea. Then I uh, had to go out and figure out how to do it. The end result is Brave New Words. Maybe you could just give us a basic idea of what the book is. Sure. Brave New Words is, well, first off, it's a dictionary of science fiction words, and that encompasses a lot of territory. Primarily, it's words that were coined by science fiction writers, usually in science fiction works. It also may contain some words that were popularized by science fiction, even if the first use may turn out to have been from another source. It also includes words that were coined to describe science fiction. So names of genres, for example, words like world building, which describes an aspect of the process of writing science fiction. And it also includes words coined by science fiction fans as part of the sort of the jargon or slang of that community. Could you talk about how you weeded out words that came from different genres, fantasy, horror, mystery? How did you make that those kind of decisions? For the most part, it wasn't that hard. Recognizing, of course, that there is a big fuzzy area between, between genres, particularly between science fiction and fantasy. Many of the classics of supernatural horror, such as the works of H.P. Lovecraft or Clark Ashton Smith, are arguably science fiction or science fantasy, at least, because frequently they involve aliens or other dimensions or some pseudo-scientific explanation of what's going on, even though their, their experience is, is that of, of horror or as, as fantasy. I tried to use a sort of the broadest definition possible. So there are a lot of words that do come from science fantasy, from works that maybe the hardcore science fiction purists might not approve of as being science fiction, but I wanted to have the most inclusive definition of science fiction possible. In terms of drawing the line, basically if a, you know if I had a word that I was interested in and I did some research and I discovered that the earliest use I could find actually came from a mainstream use, came from maybe scientific writing, came from something that wasn't directly related to science fiction, I would usually decide to exclude that word. Some words, such as cyborg, air car, turn out not to come from science fiction, but a cyborg is such a staple of, of the science fiction world, and it just seems like there would be a big hole in the dictionary if I left it out. Air car, likewise, uh, especially because there are two related words, ground car and aero car, which really are strictly science fiction. And so in order to have the whole picture of the history of those words, I wanted to include this other word, which actually, actually comes from a series of proposed inventions in the 1850s. Could you talk about the information that comes with each entry, what we learn about each word from the entries in this book? So Brave New Words is what we call an historical dictionary. In addition to the typical dictionary information of the part of speech and the definition and sometimes an etymology, every sense of every word also is followed by a list of citations. They show, first off, the earliest use of the word that I could identify. They also provide context for how the word is used. They can show uh, variant forms, variant spellings of the word. They can show very minute changes in use or register that are too fine to be able to adequately explain in a definition. And they can also sort of show how a word has may have changed in use or connotation over time. So you can see, see look, if you look at the first use of a word, you can see how it was used, and you can see how your authors have taken it and sort of run with the idea of the word over time. So it's, uh, there's a whole lot of, of extra information beyond just the definition that can be gleaned from these citations. This history aspect is really one of the most fascinating parts of the book. Uh, there's lots of what I call word journeys, where a word starts out as fiction and then ends up as fact or starts out as fact, and it, but ends up being used more in fiction. I, I think of uh, Death Ray, 
where, where I think that one of the earliest citations of it is somebody saying that, well, maybe we'll have a death ray someday soon. We, we don't have a death ray yet, although the Pentagon keeps whispering that they might have one somewhere hidden up their sleeve. But it really came into use in the genre. And there's so many fascinating word journeys here. Well, can you tell me some of your favorite word journeys? One of my favorite word journeys is probably robot. And this is, I think most science fiction fans know that this word comes from Carol Chapek's 1920 play, R-U-R, Rossum's Universal Robots. This is a very, it makes it a very unusual science fiction word. It's one of the only words commonly found in science fiction that is actually alone from another language. And it is also one of the only ones, the only ones that I know of, in fact, that had its first use in a play. Chapek's robots were actually biochemical creatures. They were created to as, as cheap labor, and they were biochemical. Now, there's a lot of controversy in the science fiction field. You can start a lot of arguments about whether a robot is purely mechanical or whether a robot is simply any sort of artificial being. And when I started working on this definition, I thought that I was actually going to have two uh, two separate definitions, one for, you know, so the Chapex sense, the biochemical, which does have some continued use actually throughout throughout the history of the science fiction, even even until fairly recently, and another for the purely mechanical. And I discovered that really most citations, most times people write about robots, at least in, in a science fiction setting, they don't bother to specify. And whether it's that the author has one version in mind and they just expect you to know it, or whether it's not particularly germane to the story, whether the robots that are sweeping the floor are mechanical or biochemical or some hybrid. So that was actually very fascinating for me to find out. The thing that's particularly exciting about robot, though, is that it caught on very quickly outside of the science fiction genre, almost immediately after the play was performed in, in English in, I believe, 1923. People started using it figuratively to describe regular people who were in jobs who made them work as automatons or people who you know, sort of lacked affect. And then, obviously, it's, it's gone on to mean a large number of things. We have, uh, you know, non, we have uh, actual robots on uh, automobile assembly plants. We have robots that you can buy that are little toys that you can, your kids can play with. We have robots that are, in fact, actually just remote-controlled vehicles that beat up on each other, which, again, is a completely, is a very far cry from the original robots, which were autonomous and, in fact, artificially intelligent. And so there's just this huge profusion of, of meanings from this one, this one simple act of creation. And sort of being able to follow that history, I think, is just, uh, is just fascinating. One of the things that we find in this dictionary is that we create words that define our future and describe our future before that future itself arrives. And oftentimes we manufacture the future to look like the ones described in science fiction. One of the most famous versions of this is, of course, cyberspace, William Gibson's invention. Could you talk a little bit about that? And, and particularly because the Internet is such a hotbed of words that come from science fiction, it, it's almost difficult to distinguish it from the science fiction. I think that's true. I think when you get to especially computers where the the distance between what science fiction writers were writing about and imagining and what computer scientists were actually creating is, uh, in some cases, very there was a very short uh, time lag between them versus, say, you know, the first use of the word spaceship was in the late 1890s, and the first actual spaceship was, wasn't for another 50 years or so. It's a very long time lag. Writers were talking about computers and the Internet and cyberspace you know, less than a decade before something approximating that became more than just theory. Um, and so in some places, because it can be very hard to piece out, well, is... You know, which, which came first, the, the concept, you know, the science fiction creation, the scientific concept, the, science, the actual scientific creation. What I can say is that there's obviously a very clear dialogue between, between science and science fiction, and they both, they both inform each other. In the realm of computer science, I think there are a lot of, a lot of words that came out of science fiction. In the 70s, there were two, two words, virus and worm, uh, both used to refer to malicious software self-propagating malicious software. And both of these words come out of uh, science fiction stories by um, John Brunner and David Gerald. And these sort of ideas of, well, if we have computers and we have networks, somebody's going to create something that is bad and does bad things, other people's computers. 
you know, this may be a fairly obvious thing to say now, but it was it was new at the time, and obviously it turned out to be true. There's a it's a multi-billion dollar problem in uh, computer networks wor- worldwide. It's interesting to see how what is imagined by essentially some wild-eyed science fiction writer 20 years ago is now a multi-billion dollar business, and, and that the <laughs> language that the science fiction writers are using now might be describing uh, a business of the future. Yeah, that is. And if, if there was a way to predict from the works that are writing today, people are writing today which, which concepts that they were creating were going to turn out to be you know, the, the big things of the future, obviously, um, a lot more science fiction writers would be a lot richer than they are now. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that, that I found quite fascinating with this book was the way the interplay between slang and the and these science fiction terms. Could you talk about how how that works and and maybe as a lexicographer, this must be important to you. Yes, I think it's fascinating. Always to me, certainly the interplay between any two possibly unrelated or barely related genres or subcultures or cultures is uh, I think is a very fertile ground. Sort of in in pop culture slang, a, a number of words have caught on that come from science fiction. One of my favorites is beam me up or beam me up Scotty. This obviously is a reference to Star Trek. The phrase beam me up Scotty was never uttered by Captain Kirk on the original series. For whatever reason, that particular phrase became very popular in the 70s, and it has several meanings now. Actually, it's it's used simply as an expression of disgust or of despair or of, oh my God, get me out of here, perhaps most famously by former representatives Traficant, who would often shout beam me up Mr. Speaker from the floor of the House of Representatives. It also turns out, I discovered this in my research for the book, actually, there is a there's a drug slang, uh, beam me up or beam me up to Scotty, which simply means to get high on crack cocaine, which was a completely uh, new use to me. It's not something I'd ever encountered, but as I was researching beam me up, I, uh, I kept finding these, these references to, to crack and, and to, uh, to drugs. And so that was fascinating. Perhaps the most famous science fiction word to enter the sort of the slang lexicon is grok, which is a coinage of Robert Heinlein's for his uh, 1963 novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. Grok in Heinlein's usage basically means to, well, it means a lot of things, but it means basically to know completely or to understand intuitively, to have com- complete deep communion with. And this really caught on, especially in the sort of 60s subculture, and has just spread everywhere. And people, people still use it in a, in a slang, slang context, you know, to, to express a deep understanding or a, or a, or a deep grasp of another person. And I think a lot of people I've talked to actually are aware of the word but had no idea where it comes from. Wow, that's interesting. One thing I noticed was there are often words that are used to describe genre fiction that end up describing the world world itself, most famously utopia and dystopia. Yeah, utopia is, a, is an interesting one. Obviously, that's a reference to a book by Sir Thomas More. It became... Utopia itself has a lot, a lot of uses, but sort of from the science, science fictional standpoint, it refers to a genre of, of works describing an ideal place. And this idea has obviously become very, very important to, to a lot of people. There have been you know, endless, endless utopian movements throughout, throughout history of people trying to create an ideal, an ideal place frequently. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the commune movements from the, you know, the late 19th century through the 1960s were based on this idea of we can make a perfect society. And this word utopia, utopian, utopianism is, is used to, descri- to describe that, that drive and that, and to some extent to those communities. Uh, dystopia, also dystopia is perhaps a more directly science fictional word actually has, was used primarily within to describe uh, literary works, uh, but is also used to describe the world. People, if they are unhappy with a given situation in the world or a particular a state of affairs or a particular government, they can describe that state of affairs as a dystopia, meaning you know that the state of affairs is terrible and we should change it, rather than the state of affairs is a science fiction book. Yeah, it's it's interesting that uh, I guess in your site for a dystopia, you mentioned that it was first used by C.S. Lewis to describe uh, George Orwell's fiction, which I think is it's really great the the a great fantasist describing. Uh, a classic literary 
authors in science fiction. And this brings me, of course, to two of the most interesting and influential authors are, of course, Huxley and Orwell, whose science fiction creations, soul though they are, really have, A, withstood the test of time, and B, infiltrated our worldview intimately. Yeah, those two works are, are sort of amazing. They're great touchstones of both of literature and of, and of science fiction and of dystopian writing for a great many people. And I think it's, it's hard to, to underestimate their effect, particularly Orwell's effect on, well, certainly on the language, which is you know, my expertise, but on the way we, we describe the world, his portrayal of a totalitarian uh, government state with a total, total insight into, its, into all aspects of the lives of its citizens, to uh, the total control of information. These, uh, these concepts and the words he, he used for them, thought crime and unperson and... Double plus ungood is one of my favorites just because it's so silly. These ideas, these words are extremely, they're very powerful. And I think people people have uh, have found them very, they make very good polemic. If you, you know, if you dislike a particular particular government, this was common in certainly during the days of Soviet, the Soviet Union and the Cold War to uh, describe the goings on in, uh, in communist Europe and Asia, you know, as if they were part of Orwell's dystopia as a, uh, people being made into unpersons as, you know, the Soviet thought police. Or if you simply don't like whoever your political opposition is, you can describe them in those terms. And they're, because the books are so well known, they're very powerful. And I think that is, uh, is maybe not, may or may not be the legacy that Orwell had hoped for, but it is an extremely, uh, extremely potent one. One thing I noticed in this book was there are lots of different types of words. There are words created in fiction to describe fictional worlds, concepts, or ideas. And this might be like Android or something that, that, that something at the time that is fictional. And, and many of these now, we were hoping for androids and robots to <laughs> do the dishes for us. There are words created to describe the fiction. Dystopian is, is uh, an example. And words created to describe the processes used to create the fiction. And these are really fascinating. You talked about world building. The process, sort of the, I think of them as sort of the literary criticism words, because I was an English major and they make me very happy. The process words are, uh, are fascinating. They, they give a little insight into the, the world of the, of the writer rather than the worlds that they create. And so world building is uh, maybe the best example of, of that, particular, that particular one, which is the process of creating a fictional universe in which to set your works. And it can involve more or less work depending on, on how... Uh, how much time and effort you want to spend on it, but there are whole whole books have been written about how to create planets and solar systems to realistically set your uh, your future or alien societies on. Uh, this is actually a concept that is also very valuable in fantasy. Uh, J.R. Tolkien is maybe the most famous for his, uh, and in fact created a whole nomenclature for describing the creation of worlds, which as far as I can tell strictly uh, maintained in fantasy, but uh, he talks about a sub-creation which is an act of creation of a world that is a, a subset of, of the major act of creation, which is that of, of God over our universe. Uh, Tolkien himself was, was a Christian, and so he, he uh, would talk in those terms. But this idea of world building then is, is uh, the term certainly seems to come out of science fiction, but is, has application to fantasy, uh, presumably to video games, to virtual realities, to, to all manner of things. I actually can't think of any other words. Well, the word that I really liked and I think is is becoming increasingly important was coined by one of my favorite writers, Howard Waldrop, info dump. Oh, yes. We live in an info dump world. Tell, tell us what an info dump is in science fiction. An info dump is a large block of text that describes some aspect of the writer's world or the plot basically to the reader because it's something that the reader is not going to be familiar with. And Infodump originally was actually was, was fairly pejorative because in a lot of, of science fiction and fantasy, you would be reading along and, along and suddenly the text would stop or the story would stop and you'd have a long sort of exposition about why, you know, some, some aspect of the world was the way it was. Uh, this obviously would be completely unnecessary in most mainstream fiction because people could assume, be understood to know, you know, where New York is or, you know, what the uh, government of, of Britain or whatever is. And there's actually, there's a related term, expository lump, which basically means the same thing. And these, these terms seem to come out of the uh, science fiction uh, writing workshop uh, community. And there's a large community of, of writing workshops uh, for science fiction and fantasy. And, and they have published uh, periodically uh, glossaries of some of the terms they use. And those are, those are two of the most, uh, most common. One of my favorite ones that uh, I didn't include because I 
it doesn't actually seem to be that common outside of outside of these glossaries is uh, is as you know Bob, which is a type of info dump, dump where one of the characters will say, well, as you know, Bob, blah, 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 whatever the reader is supposed to know. Uh, interestingly about InfoDump is it actually, over time, uh, has lost some of its pe- pe- pejorative connotation. So you can have good info dumps and bad info dumps. So a, a, a good writer will be able to you know, intersperse their information uh, more gracefully through the text, um, you know, ideally without the reader sort of knowing that they're actually being handed a, you know, a bunch of, of information. And so that actually is described also as info dumping, as well as the whole you know, two pages of, of sort of dry exposition. It seems to me, too, actually the info dump itself has become a, a popular stylistic tool in mainstream fiction, and I'm thinking now of Chuck Palahniuk will often bring his novels to a grinding halt to tell you something maybe you never wanted to ever think about, <laughs> like how to drink beer out of slug traps in suburban yards. But uh, it, it, the... The style itself, I think, is, as you say, it's lost much of its pejorative value and it's become a, really a part of our culture. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I had not encountered that um, in, uh, in mainstream work. I'm, I'm perhaps a little sorry to hear that it, <laughs> the practice has, has spread around. But also, I think a good writer can, can, take, any, can take anything and, and make it into something worth reading. It's interesting to see some of the authors who show up regularly many of them are people you'd expect to find, Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke. And Heinlein is particularly important. He, he, I'm, we, we talked about earlier about Grok. One of my favorites that hasn't caught on much outside of science fiction is Tan Staffel. Could you tell <laughs> us about Tan Staffel? Yeah, Tan Staffel is an abbreviation, an acronym, I suppose, that means there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And this is a, a, uh, an acronym that was popularized by Robert Heinlein Although actually, it has an old, a much older older use. It uh, it was been around since I forget exactly, but I think the the twenties or thirties, and and was was you know was was not well known. And I think was known only in, in small small circles. But then Heinlein used it in in several of his of his books, and it really became sort of like a a catchword or a catchphrase among among science fiction fans and and out in into the world. But it's a uh, yeah, I think it's I think everyone has has uh, experienced the uh, the idea that. You know that there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. That something that you think should be should be free or easy turns out actually to be very complicated or uh, or a lot more trouble than really it seems like it's worth. And so this idea, I think, this this handy way to say that, I think, you know, I think has has been uh, has been popular because of that because of something that everyone everyone experiences. Another phrase that he originated, and this is a really great word journey, I think, is space cadet. Um, when he wrote Space Cadet, he was writing his, it was a juvenile book, and, and and it was good. I mean, it was a nice, it was a kind of a sweet, smart, cool thing to be. Yeah, Space Cadet was uh, one of Heinlein's, uh, Heinlein's juveniles. And in fact, there are, there are those who, who will say that, that Heinlein's best novels were, were his juveniles. And they were certain, they were certainly very good, and there's no question about that. And a space cadet, yeah, it was a, it was a great thing to be. It was a tra- basically a trainee spaceman, you know, somebody who was learning how to, you know, the ropes of of being a spacer, of of flying a spaceship, traveling through space, and yeah, it was exciting. It was something something you wanted to be, and and this idea, the space cadet, obviously caught on, and a lot of other science fiction writers wrote stories about about space cadets, and you know, along come the nineteen sixties, and uh, people start using space cadet to mean someone who's completely out of touch with reality, especially as if they're high on drugs. And this, actually, this uh, became quite popular in the 1980s. It was a major feature of Valley Girl slang. You know, obviously has nothing whatsoever to do with, with Heinlein's original creation. In fact, it's basically a reanalysis of the, of the two words and really a different, a different meaning of the word space entirely rather than meaning, meaning outer space. It means, you know, sort of it means being spaced out. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating word journey. It's a, it's a great insight into, into how language, language changes. And, and Heinlein also created the word xenobiologist, which is now you can go learn to be a xenobiologist. This is a classic <laughs> science fiction word journey. Tell us a little yeah, bit about that. Xenobiologist. And in fact, the xeno prefix in, in general, this is a, a xenobiologist is someone who studies the um, alien life forms, plants and, and animals of that are, are you know not from from the earth, and obviously this is very important in science fiction. There's a you know there's whole whole subgenres of science fiction that are basically basically uh, dealing with uh, 
alien contact or with uh, space exploration. And so you want to have your xenobiologists and your xenobotanists and your xenolinguists and your xenoanthropologists out studying about you know whatever cultures you're coming in contact with, whatever species you encounter. You know, as the actual space exploration you know has advanced, then you know we start to deal with the the prospect of well maybe one day we will actually encounter alien life forms. I think most people now are scientists anyway are, are imagining that what we're going to encounter are bacteria or, or similar similar things. But nonetheless, this is these are alien biologies, and so it's a perfectly makes perfect sense to uh, to call people who are who are studying these things or in, who are anticipating study being able to study these things as uh, xenobiologists. Uh, another phrase, and I remember reading this original story when it first came out in the, the Terry Carr world's best science fiction series, is organ leggers. And <laughs> this seemed like a, a, when you read this, you knew that this was going to happen. It, it seemed another inevitable journey from science fiction to part of our culture. Yeah, the organ legger is someone who basically harvests organs from people without their permission and sells them on the black market to people who need or want transplants. And this was uh, part of uh, Larry Niven's, uh, one of Larry Niven's um, story cycles. This is, uh, I mean, this is certainly the uh, the, the concept of organ leggers in the real world comes up periodically. I think there's a and I, I can't speak to whether it actually happens, though I know certainly you hear, you hear news reports of this happening occasionally, and it's something obviously that people are quite concerned about as you know, our uh, medical technology is more and more able to transplant and replace uh, failing organs. There obviously becomes, becomes a, need, a need for them, and people then perceive a, you know, perhaps a, a lack of, of available organ donors, and so they, they, uh, there's, I think there's a real fear that that uh, organs will will be harvested illegally and you know put in in uh, in healthy people. Another word that has gone from science fiction to physics and it's very popular is is uh, Michael Moorcock's creation. I remember reading these as well, the Elric books, and he called them all. They were all set in what he called the multiverse. Yeah, the multiverse is a is a great as a certainly was a great fictional concept. Uh, has served Moorcock and other writers very well. A multiverse is basically a set of universes of uh, of realities of of space-time continua which depending on who's writing may or may not communicate with each other and uh, this is something that certainly was very uh, very fruitful fictional idea and a lot of a lot of people have run with it but certain theories of physics also allow for there to be multiple universes there's wherein say each you know at each each event, you know, there are several possibilities, and in fact, each each possible event actually does happen, and it splits off the universe into into however many possible events there are. So, you, so that we don't experience these events happening, that they're happening at a at a level which we cannot perceive, but so that there are in fact an infinite number of universes constantly being being created as uh, as uh, different probabilities occur. Of course, we all know one of the main functions of science fiction is for writers, when they're making up words, is to think of new ways to say fuck without <laughs> saying fuck. <laughs> so <laughs> tell us a little bit about, so, about cursing in science fiction, which is really a, a, a valuable word generator. Well, cursing in science fiction is really just an, an endless source of, source of, of entertainment and, and fun. And a lot of writers have had to come up, with this, come up, with, uh, come up against this. This has been a, a problem in censor- censorship. One of the most famous examples, I think, is Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was uh, in, in, in Britain, in the British publication, had uh, you know, the, most, the most awful swear in, in the galaxy. The whole, most horrible word you could say was actually the word fuck. And his American publishers wouldn't let him uh, print it, so he changed it to Belgium. <laughs> which, frankly, is a lot funnier. So censorship does have uh, does occasionally uh, have some good results. You see this most in television. The censorship standards uh, relaxed in print a lot sooner than they did in television. In fact, you could argue that they haven't really relaxed that much in television at all. Television writers who want their characters to be able to swear in any way, you know, without you know having ridiculous um, circumlocutions, uh, come up with different ways to do it. The uh, British TV series uh, Red Dwarf, I think, has maybe been the most successful in terms of getting its its curse words actually out in popular use. 
the uh, sort of the base swear word is smeg, which can be used for fuck or damn or shit, um, just as an interjection, and has uh, lots of um, lots of variant forms. Smeggy, smeghead, is just a it's a it's a great word. It comes from the word smegma, which is uh, I think in fact I think be- because it has a um, sort of a real world. Now what is smegma? <laughs> can you tell us? <laughs> Smegma, I would, I would have to, I would actually have to, have to look, look it up to be sure, but I, I believe it is actually a, um, it is a, a, a bodily exudation um, <laughs> of the, uh, of the, of the male parts. Okay. <laughs> uh, other, other examples of, of words. Uh, the uh, TV show Farscape uses frell, and frelling pretty much the same way you would use fuck and fucking, and uh, more recently. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, the uh, the re sort of the reboot of Battlestar Galactica has uh, uses frack. Frack actually was used in the first uh, Battlestar Galactica series as well, but it it never caught on in, in popular culture. And there's some evidence to suggest that the frack being re- reintroduced in the latest series is uh, is catching on a little bit. Um, though time will tell whether whether that goes on. One thing that I found really fascinating was that words used to describe science fiction fans now are used to describe whole segments of the population. And maybe that's a little frightening for people who aren't <laughs> science fiction fans. Uh, well, for example, completist. Right. A completist uh, is basically somebody who is a collector, and their goal is to collect the complete set of something. And this originated in science fiction fandom, and it would be people who wanted either all the works by a given author or all the issues of a certain magazine or books from a publisher or books in a genre. And this idea, I mean, the idea of a collector, collectors are just as dedicated or rabid, depending on your point of view, in, you know, other, in other realms, uh, music collectors or, or postage stamp collectors or whatever, as they are in science fiction. And so this idea of, of a complete, if somebody wants a complete set of something, Pretty quickly um, spread into other uh, other realms, and I believe I have uh, citations from um, from uh, uh, record collectors um, in the uh, in the dictionary, and uh, it's uh, that was a surprise to me. I, I had I had not known that it was a uh, was had migrated from science fiction to the to the collecting world in general. I was also fascinated by the the use of the word universe. We we think of the universe as you know the stars and cosmos and galaxies around us, but it, in science fiction, it's always had this idea of uh, being a fictional creation. And this is a really valuable word, I think, if, if words can 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 be valuable. But I think it's it's a it's a it's a very useful term to be able to describe the the setting of a book. But it's it's in some ways it's more specific than a setting um, because. Before science fiction, books basically had a setting, and it was some version of of the real world. And sometimes they would have to create, you know, fictional towns or or whatever. But it was basically an analog to to the world we inhabit. But for science fiction and uh, and also fantasy, there is literally a creation of a new fictional universe that has different properties than the one we inhabit. And maybe it has different physical laws, or maybe magic is possible, or there are faster than light travel is 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 actually possible uh, there's telepathy all sorts of of things and so um, some science fiction reviewers actually started to use the word universe to describe this type of setting this setting of a science fiction story especially but also fantasy and, and maybe some others wherein the it really is recognized to be uh, substantially different than than the world that that the writer and the reader inhabit um i hesitate to use the real world because of course that's a somewhat more loaded but it's interesting and i i I believe i believe actually this actually comes out of the uh, idea of the pocket universe which is basically a sub-universe within within a universe like say a a mad scientist could create a pocket universe um that then they could they could then control this little tiny sub-universe within our own universe there's actually um some critics in the 60s who started using pocket universe to describe the universes of of science fiction writers, and then that shortly got shortened simply to to universe. And now we have the the blank verse. For example, uh, a term I hear all the time is the Buffy verse. <laughs> yeah, the Buffy verse. Uh, Buffy verse is funny. It has a lot of a lot of variants. I've seen Buffy verse. I've seen uh, Angel verse. I've seen J 
Jossiverse after Joss Whedon, its creator. And these basically then refer to, yeah, they're, it's, uh, they're used to refer to very specific universes. And usually these are the universes of media franchises. So you get Marvelverse, you get Star Trekverse, or continuing series is, um, like a Lois McMaster Bujold's uh, Miles Vorkosigan series is really known as the Vorkosiverse. I, I honestly don't know how it came about. It's sort of, it seems like an obvious, uh, obvious uh, suffix to, to create when you start talking about very specific, specific universes, and it's easier to say Marvelverse than it is to say Marvel Universe or Buffyverse than the universe created by Joss Whedon for his works Buffy, Angel, and, and whatever. It's spread pretty, pretty widely, and you'll find it in not just science fiction and fantasy anymore. It's, it's really is, uh, is spread to you know, sort of all walks of, of life where there is need to, and usually, usually where there is an active, an active fandom to describe whatever um, sort of uh, setting of a series of works. I wonder if you'd care to talk to me a bit about, a, a, as a lexicographer, how you see the words that we create help to create our future. That's an interesting, interesting question. And certainly the words that we create create our future in maybe a very pedestrian sense in, in that having created them, they then become available for future use. So they do obviously affect simply the language of the future. And it's a very, very pedestrian way of doing it. I think in terms of how words can create or influence the future, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about George Orwell and his, his sort of words that he uses to describe his totalitarian state. And I think the availability of, of these these terms, they become because the book was so well known, they um, they can be used as a, sort of a shorthand, and so you know they can be used to affect the way people talk about and and and, and to influence the way people think about certain things, and that's uh, and that's maybe more in the socio political arena. In terms of the scientific arena, which is where we think about science fiction having the most effect, it's hard to in some ways it's hard to separate the word from the concept. I think it could be argued that the concepts of science fiction, of the fictional gadgets, technologies, whatever, do sometimes do sometimes have an effect on on uh, future on future technologies. Sure, the uh, scientists who read they're science fiction fans. They they, yeah. they spent their you spend your formative teen years reading about phasers, and you get out there and get a weapons contract. You want to build a phaser, right? And it's a and sometimes there there is a very a very close relationship between between science fiction and readers and and urban writers and uh, and scientists. And a lot of science fiction writers are also scientists, and so sometimes it's hard to trace the lines of influence because the the, the boundaries are, are are so loose. But one thing you can I can certainly say is that a lot of times a word that's coined in science fiction to describe a science fictional idea, once that idea is created in the real world, frequently the science fiction term is used to to describe it. Um, one of the best examples of this, I think, actually is spaceship. So is an idea from 1890s. And the idea, well, the idea is, is ancient, but uh, the word is from the 1890s. And then when scientists literally started talking about, hey, yeah, maybe we'll be able to build a spaceship and go to the moon, um, 1920s or 30s, actually, they called them spaceships. They didn't create a new word. They didn't call them astro vehicles or whatever. They, they simply called them spaceships. And, and uh, I think having, having an available lexicon can uh, you know, certainly affect what we, what we choose to call the, call the inventions of the future. One thing I found fascinating, too, is that science fiction writers are, are apparently really good at is making up laws that people remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of Arthur C. Clarke and, of course, the infamous uh, Theodore Sturgeon's Law. And, and it's nice to have you get the, the right quote in there. Tell us a little bit about what Sturgeon's Law is and, and when why he came about it. Well, Sturgeon's Law is basically, it's the uh, it's a statement it's, or, or belief that 90% of everything is crud or crap or shit, or you get all sorts of variants on uh, what the final word is. And this, my understanding is the, um, is this actually occurred in the early 1950s. He was giving a talk at, at a university uh, with uh, his fellow science fiction writer, William Ten, And uh, somebody in the audience, you know, basically asked him something along the lines of, hey, is, you know, wouldn't you say that 90% of science fiction is crud and and the uh, theater surgeon said, well, let me ask you this. Would you say that you know, 90% of the proceedings of the PMLA is crud? And the, his respondent apparently said something like, well, unfortunately, yes. And the surgeon said, well, yes, it's because 90% of everything is crud. And, and uh, this, uh, this idea is, um, 
<laughs> so it's a it's a great idea. It's and it's and the great thing about it is that everybody can say it about the same series of 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 works or whatever, and you know not be in disagreement. Even though you know the ninety percent of science fiction that I think is crud is not going to be the same ninety percent that somebody else thinks is crud. And so it's it's a sort of useful way to 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 um oh it's, it's a, I think it's. Acknowledge a, our differences. Yeah, it is. It is. And also to acknowledge, at the same time, acknowledging that I'm smarter than everybody else because I recognize that 10%, only 10% is good. And of course, uh, Arthur C. Clarke had some very interesting laws, too, that have also caught on. His first law that when a scientist says that something is impossible, it, he believes that it will be probable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Clarke's first law is, is basically that... Um, if a, if a distinguished scientist says something is 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 possible, he's probably right. But if he says it's 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 not possible, he's uh, he's almost certainly wrong, which is I think uh, is particularly about uh, about distinguished distinguished and elderly scientists who've maybe maybe had their had their had their day. But this is a very a very popular idea, and I think it also has it's mostly used still of sciences, but has has some application to to other fields where you have the younger. The younger people having having uh, great ideas that the older the older generation says no 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 that that's wrong and and uh, the recognition that in fact frequently times change and theories change and new discoveries are made and what used to be impossible you know maybe isn't anymore and it's, it's I think it's it's a it's an admonition not to become uh, hidebound and not to not to get too set in your ways and not to just decide something's impossible because that's what you learned a long time ago. It's fascinating when you go through this dictionary to see the oh-so-humble beginnings <laughs> of words <laughs> that we think of. Uh, uh, you would never think had such a humble beginning. That, that the, the, the hundreds of anonymous and not-so-anonymous hairy-eyed science fiction writers in the 30s creating these words in the pulps. Now, uh, a guy who's really, I think, even among science fiction readers— not particularly well regarded as E.E. E. Doc Smith. <laughs> yeah, Doc Smith is is really in some ways impossible to overstate his his importance, certainly to the to the sort of linguistic heritage of, of science fiction. And he was obviously very important and influential in uh, in the early days of science fiction. And the the fact that he really wasn't a very gifted writer in some ways is sort of beside the point in in those terms. Although it obviously means that he's not particularly well read anymore unlike say Robert Heinlein who who was in fact a very good writer and was also extremely um probably as as important in terms of of uh, sort of creating the language of, of science fiction uh actually those two writers Smith and Heinlein have have the most uh, first citations of, of any authors in the books um the 34 and 33 uh Smith and Heinlein respectively but yeah Smith Smith's uh his uh he was and he was extremely popular in his day he was uh and uh, his his star has has certainly fallen, but yeah, I think one of the one of the great things about this book is that it sort of allows us to to pay homage to these these um, these writers who maybe maybe we've uh, maybe have been forgotten um, by by a lot of people and have been um, not necessarily neglected, but but you know whose whose sort of day has come and gone, and this is maybe a way to to say well, perhaps perhaps you know perhaps they're not read anymore, but you know, this they were important. They did they did have an effect and they they did Well it suggests too maybe we need to re reevaluate what's important in a writer. I mean we may not remember Smith's stories, but if we're still using his words every single day <laughs> uh, that's a that's a pretty important linguistic heritage. It's devoid of plot <laughs> characterization or yeah. any of the other things we use we usually get out yeah. of literature. And I think I think it's uh it's difficult in literature. I mean you can have a great you know, kind of a novel that has has lots of great ideas in it, and have it be completely unreadable. And you can have a novel that is, you know, compulsively readable and not have an original thought, and it's in, in anywhere in, in in the entire book. And I think it's it's a question of, of of what people want from from their writing. And obviously, the the drier text is going to be harder to uh, to drum up interest in. But I think it's it's. Yeah, it's important to remember that 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 uh, certainly was I think was salutary for me to discover while while doing this book that just because a a work is is boring or is is not considered important hours by an author that no one's ever heard of anymore doesn't mean that it doesn't have good ideas or that it doesn't have original thought in it and that 
you know, it's important not to discard things out of hand, but actually to, you know, to periodically reevaluate what's what's good and what's important. It it seems too that it's becoming increasingly important for us in order to even just wrap our brains around the world we live in at this moment. We really need to understand more about science fiction. I mean, we we live as, as when I talked to Kim Stanley Robinson, he he told me that we live in a bad science fiction novel, <laughs> and I think that's really true. Could you talk about how how it, you need to understand science fiction just to be able to get around the world today? That's an interesting question. I mean, it, it's obviously you, you, it's not literally true. Most a lot of people are getting around the world just fine without without having any understanding of of science fiction. But I think what science fiction does it provides a I think it provides its readers a way of an a way of, of I don't know of, of maybe thinking about about the world or thinking about about technology that is is uh, is you know is maybe in a different format than you know people who aren't necessarily going to pick up science scientific American or, or nature or uh, you know and sort of keep abreast of what are the you know the hot topics today but if they're reading some of the more um, certainly, and this is mostly true of the, of the harder science fiction writers. Um, you know, if they're they're reading reasonably current science fiction writers, they're gonna you know know something about nanotechnology or about sort of some of the more out there uh, theories about um, artificial intelligence or about the um, origins of the universe or about you know various phys- um, current physical theories. And so I think you know there is a it is science fiction is is one way uh, I think to enge- to be engaged with. Uh, sort of the world of science and exploration and discovery and invention without necessarily having to, you know, be keeping up on all sort of the technical the technical sides of that. We've been speaking with Jeff Pruker. His new book is A Brave New Words. It's a dictionary collecting the words created by the science fiction genre. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.